Hello again, pool fans from across the country and around the world. You are listening to American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host once again this week. It is March the 10th, 2016. And today's show is brought to you in part by Q Sports International. Creating more choices for more players and creating lots of new events in the world. You know, this is uh, a good time to be a pool player because we've got three brand new, you know, I don't want to say brand new. We've got three new events that are sort of returning to the calendar. Uh, The WPBA. The Women's Professional Billiard Association. Right now, as we speak, 48 of the world's top women players have converged on Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They're at the Rivers Casino right now, shooting it out at their own U.S. Open. That is going to continue for the rest of the week. And uh, if you're interested, you're going to want to catch that, the finals of that, on Sunday on ESPN3. All you have to do, it's it does not cost you anything. <coughs> Excuse me. Go to the uh, ESPN website. Click on uh, their Watch It Now for ESPN3. And Sunday afternoon, you get to watch the finals of the WPBA uh, US Open. That's back on the calendar. I want to congratulate them, actually, because uh, that's a, a great move. Um, the female players are just itching for good events, so this is perfect that they've brought this event back. And speaking of U.S. Opens, um, CSI also bringing it back with the U.S. Open 14-1 championship and a U.S. Open uh, one-pocket championship. Uh, those will be coming up in just a little over a month from now. So uh, if you're interested in playing in any one of those, uh, either one of those, by all means, go to the CSI Q Sports International website and check it out because uh, these outstanding opportunities to get these two disciplines back on the map. So you guys are going to want to do that. And like me, you might want to watch it. You want to watch the action. So keep your eyes peeled for streaming information and other good stuff like that. Um, what else do I have to tell you? You know, um, we are a big fan of t-shirts around here. (laughs) At least I am. So if you want to get yourself an American Billiard Radio t-shirt, we, I'm proud to announce that we've opened up a gift shop. All you have to do is just go to our website. Uh, Up at the very top of the page, there's a link for the gift shop. And down at the very bottom of the page, there's a link for the gift shop. We've got t-shirts and jackets and cups and glasses and stickers and, you know, all kinds of stuff that you you don't really need. But if you're a fan of the show, well, by golly, we would appreciate it if you went out and got yourself a shirt. So, uh, hey, it's there if you want it. Uh, what else is going on in the news? Well, you know, we've got the uh, Chinook Winds. Chinook Winds and Lincoln City. Is uh, their eight ball division is firing up tomorrow? That's going to run through the weekend. Um, also, starting up over the weekend is the uh, China Pool World Championship. Uh, so that's going to be some uh, intense action. I can promise you that. And there's good money on the line for that. So you might want to keep track of going what's going on with that there. Also in the news. 
The um, Atlantic Challenge Cup is being sponsored this year by Connolly Tables. That's a little bit of a shock. Uh, Connolly still out there making their tables, but uh, you know, you hadn't we haven't seen or heard much of them <laughs> from them in the last couple of years. So, congratulations to Connolly for stepping up and being an official table sponsor of the Atlantic Challenge Cup for the juniors. So uh, that's going to be a good thing, uh, not only for the company but for uh, uh, for the the, the the juniors to have that sponsor for their event too. So good on them, good on them for stepping up and uh, trying to help out the industry. And let's see, what else do we got for you? <laughs> well, that's all about the major stuff for this week. Um, I did want to share a little tidbit with you. One of those uh, 100 years ago today, this moment in history. It just so happened that 100 years ago today, they were preparing, uh, the billiard world that is, was preparing for a big six-man competition uh, in pocket billiards to take place down in Kansas City. Now, um, the point of me bringing this up is that uh, there was a precedent set here that uh, has never been that's never been equaled and it's never been met. It just so happens that a hundred years ago there weren't really any junior leagues. There's no junior associations. There weren't any junior qualifiers or junior anything. Um, if you were a young man and you were excellent at playing pool or billiards, it was considered somewhat of an anomaly. You were sort of a wonder boy, they, they would call you. And you would go out and maybe do some exhibitions. And if you were really imp as impressive as they said you were, then you might get partnered up with a pro that would sort of take you under his wing and, and bring you through the ranks. So the point of that, of me saying this, is that the juniors did not have an official route into the professional world. When you were a kid and you were good, you competed against the pros, even if you were young. There was no uh, dividing line between the two. Uh, and to that point... A hundred years ago, they're getting ready for this big pocket billiard tournament that was technically a qualifier for later in the year. But get a load of who was playing in this uh, in this preliminary. It was Mr. Benny Allen. Uh, as a matter of fact, the tournament, this six-man pocket billiard tournament, was being held at Benny Allen's uh, billiard hall. In Kansas City, it was actually called Kling and Allen's because Johnny Kling and Benny Allen owned it. The six men were Benny Allen, Johnny Kling, Johnny Layton, A.B. Bunnell, which raises a good question. Do we think that the Bunnell, Royce Bunnell, might have been related to A.B. Bunnell? And this final contestant, are, well, there was Walter Franklin, and then the final contestant was a kid that you might have heard of by the name of Ralph Greenleaf. Ralph Greenleaf at that time was maybe 15, 
15, going on 16. A 16 year old boy who was really not really well known at the time, but yet had been seen and heard of so much that they considered him a dark horse. He was a threat that nobody really knew about. And even then, in 1915, 100 years ago, well, 101 years ago, sorry, they knew, they recognized it right away that that, uh, Greenleaf was something serious. They predicted that he was going to go on to be great. And guess what? He did. He very much did. So my question is, you know, sort of a hypothetical to you, what 16-year-old kid today will show up at, uh, you know, I don't know, the U.S. Open, any U.S. Open, or Derby City, or, uh, you know, at the Moscone Cup, or Turning Stone, anything. What 16-year-old kid comes in and competes with the likes of the Shane Van Bonings and the Daryl Appletons and the, you know, Justin Bergmans and the Skylar Woodwards. I mean, these kids are not that old, but they're not 16. So when's the last time you saw a 16-year-old come in and play literally up side by side with the big boys and actually scared them to death? It hadn't happened in a while. So uh, Greenleaf was a bit of an anomaly, you know. Uh, we don't, uh, we just don't have these boy wonders coming through the system anymore. And it's a curious thing. It's not, it couldn't possibly be that the kids are no smarter or better than they were then. That just, that can't be possible. So it makes you wonder, you know, with our whole human race being more intelligent than we were a hundred years ago, why is it that we don't have 14, 15, 16 year old kids scaring the bejesus out of the pearls? It makes you wonder, you know? something's different so sorry i didn't mean to dwell on that i just thought that was an interesting happening that was going on there there's uh you know kind of a big deal this ralph greenleaf kid he went on to take the world championship like many many times so anyway um this is going to be as i mentioned um flying solo this week so it's going to be a little bit shorter of a show than we usually have um i hope i hadn't put you to sleep already but uh what I'm going to do is go ahead and uh, we're going to cover the last two chapters of the book that we've been reading, The Fabulous Mr. Ponzi, which, in case you did not know, is an autobiography of a three-time world champion pocket billiard player, Mr. Andrew D'Alessandro. So uh, with that, we'll go ahead and get ready to read you the last two chapters of the book. If you have not caught chapters one through seven go ahead and uh, hit our archive page and you can catch up to where we are today Uh, today i'm gonna cover the last two which is chapter eight and nine and then we'll be done with the book so stick around and we'll be back for the book reading right after this Alright, welcome back everybody. This is the portion of the show where we have been reading a, a book by Mr. Andrew D'Alessandro. 
Andrew Ponzi was the name that he was known by. And they gave him a nickname like that because he used to take everybody's money in the pool hall. So they called him a Ponzi. The book was written uh, by Mr. Andrew Ponzi himself and his manager, Sam Edwards Levy, in 1948. <coughs> Excuse me. He was a three-time world champion pocket billiard player. And this is a sort of an autobiography of his. We've co uh, covered chapters one through seven previously. Uh, if you are you know, not current, go back into the archive and, and catch the other episodes, and you can catch up with where we are now. We are going to finish the book today. Um, I will tell you this, that the book at the end actually has some instructional material and some charts and whatnot. And, of course, that is not going to do you any good to listen to charts or diagrams. So we're not going to be covering that. We're just going to go through the book. And also, fair warning, that the copy that we have is in awful condition. So it's kind of hard to read. Um, some of the words are misspelled and they're stuck together. So um, I apologize for stuttering over some of the stuff, uh, but uh, we'll get through it as quickly and efficiently as we possibly can. So uh, here we are, chapter eight. It was the year of our Lord, 1942, and our country was at war. Military camps, service centers, and naval hospitals were springing up overnight like mushrooms. Dusty roads, Atlanta, Atlantic cities, Boardwalk and city streets all resounded with the tramp of marching feet as millions of our young men responded to the call of our country. Every service center and company barracks boasted of one or more billiard tables. The Billiard, billiard Association of America made plans to send some of our greatest Q-wielders to every training center in the United States for the purpose of instructing our service men and women. I was one of the ones chosen, and though I have no accurate records of the numbers before whom I appeared, I believe a conservative figure would be in the neighborhood of about 500,000 servicemen and women. These exhibitions, given by players whose salaries and expense accounts ranged from twenty to $30,000 a year, were presented absolutely free by the Billiard Association of America. We played from three to four exhibitions daily to groups ranging from as low as 20 people up to a cantamount seating 2,000. I pronounced that wrong. It was a cantonment. A cantonment. During my tours covering the period, I visited over 500 military and naval posts, veterans' hospitals, and service centers. Nowadays, I am never surprised when some young man approaches me and says, the last time I saw you play was at Camp Dix. Or maybe, I played against you at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. I shall never forget an experience that occurred in connection with one of these engagements while I was touring the service centers in the Lone Star State. My schedule called for a game at a naval training center located on an island just off the city of Galveston. On the day that I arrived there, I was met by the most miserable weather that one had ever encountered. Rain had been falling since early morning, and now, as I gazed out of my hotel window, it was pouring as though the very heavens had opened up on us. I phoned the recreation officer at the center for instructions. 
he advised me to wait in the hotel lobby until they sent a car for me. Shortly after, two young men arrived, attired in yellow slickers, southwesters, hip boots, and entered the lobby and made themselves known. We drove to the dock, where a naval launch awaited me. As I left the car, I was enveloped by the sheets of falling rain. I rushed to the end of the pier, where the launch was moored. When a nonchalant helmsman said, Jump in! I recoiled in dismay. There was at least a foot of water in the launch. It came over the seats, and I had no cover whatsoever. Anyhow, I jumped in. While we chugged to the other side, I flopped around in water that came up over my ankles. When I reached the recreation hall, water was running from me <laughs> in little rivulets. I would not have received a more thorough circuit more thorough soaking if I had been immersed in Galveston Bay. The recreation officer advised me to remove my clothes. They would be sent to the steam room and would be thoroughly dried. Meanwhile, <coughs> excuse me, I was I was provided with a suit of sailor whites, and in this attire <laughs> of the Uncle Sam's gobs, I gave my exhibition. When I finished my performance and was ready to leave, my own clothing was returned to me, all dried and neatly pressed. A car took me back to the pier. The launch was waiting, and the same young man who had taken me over repeated his laconic, Jump in! <clears throat> By this time, there was about two feet of water in the launch. In the next few minutes, the crease was out of my trousers, and the water slopped about my knees and I was never more miserable in my life. When I got back to my hotel, I left a trail of water from the lobby right up to into my room, where I immediately disrobed, hoping there would be no serious consequences from my experience. When I, when I awoke the next morning, the sun was shining brightly. Texas is big, is, is big in many ways. She can boast of her area, cattle ranches and oil production, but she can also lay claim to the most prodigious rainfall that ever fell on this inerrant billiard player. Shortly after my encounter with the elements, I left for Kansas City, where I was due to meet Willie Moscone in a challenge match for the world's title. Benny Allen, who had held titular honors back in 1913 through 15, produced the match at his Kansas City Recreation. The conditions called for 1,250 points to be played in blocks of 125 each at continuous pocket billiards. For the benefit of the uninitiated who have never witnessed a championship match at 14-1 style of play, I believe the following explanation is in order. <clears throat> when a player has pocketed 14 balls successively, the ref referee racks the 14 balls leaving the 15th ball on the table for the break shot. The player then proceeds to pocket the ball, pocket the break ball in a designated pocket and endeavors to carom the cue ball into the racked triangle in order to break up the cluster. If he is successful, he continues play, and the same procedure is followed from rack to rack until he misses, scratches, or scores the required number of points. 
After a player has won the block, he clears the table of all object balls but one, the break ball. He then continues his run when play is next resumed. My challenge match with Moscone was set at 1,250 points at his insistence. Willie was under the impression that a long game would be to his advantage, as he is noted for his high-run proclivities. But the result of the contest would have been the same regardless of the number of points played, because from the very onset, from the very outset, I forged to the front and took a lead that was never relinquished during the entire match. The score at the end of the first block was 137 to 2 in my favor. I closed the game with an unfinished run of 70, which I stretched to 90 when we resumed play. At the close of our second block, I was far in front with a score lopsided 325 to 46. Moscone's cause looked helpless, hopeless. He did not win a game until the fifth block, and even then he did not cut my lead to any appreciable extent. But on our last day of play, he really went to town. He staged a spirited rally to cut my lead by 206 balls, winning the ninth block by a score of 334 to 128. However, he had shot his bolt, and when the tenth final block was completed, the word went out over the wires that Moscone had been dethroned. And for the third successive time, Andrew Ponzi held the pocket billiard championship. Ninety days later, we met again in Kansas City, and this time it was Moscone who had the upper hand. We were both in great form, and our match was marked by many sparkling runs. But like the great player that he is, Moscone came through to triumph and regain the crown. The reader probably wonders why the pocket billiards title changes hands so often. My guess is that the top three or four men are so evenly matched that only the breaks of the game will decide the ultimate winner. The loss of my title was compensated somewhat shortly after when my wife presented me with a second daughter <coughs> whom, whom we named Luisa. 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 Many people have asked if I intend to teach my daughter the game of billiards. Invariably, I answer, why not? Women, as a rule, are noted for their handiwork, and there's no valid reason why they cannot become expert billiardists. They are expert homemakers, paint beautifully, and are accomplished musicians. The game is made to order for hands, so expert in these difficult arts. In Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra, the bard refers to Cleo as enjoying a game of billiards, which proves that the fair sex played this game long ago. One of our greatest players on the distaff side is is Miss Ruth McGinnis, women's pocket billiard champion. Mildred Babe Zaharias, one of the greatest women athletes of all time, could not hope, excuse me, could not cope with the Q prowess of Miss, Miss McGinnis when they met in a special billiard match at the Capitol Billiards in New York some years ago. I believed this marked the only setback the great Babe Zaharias has ever received 
from one of her own sex. It was during this year that my travels took me to Schenectady, New York, home of General Electric. They were conducting experiments in television at that time, and I was engaged to put on a billiard exhibition of fancy and trick shots in the General Electric studio. In those days, they had no regular video schedule, and what started out to be a 20-minute program was stretched out to an hour and a half because of the numerous telephone requests to continue with the program. I feel sure that I, I pioneered the first billiard game that was ever televised, and I believe the day will come when all our championship matches will be shown through this medium. There is a strong possibility that the next titular matches will be, or may be, televised in the Chicago area. If this should come to pass, billiard lovers may have the opportunity of witnessing Moscone and myself in another titular struggle. We met again in 1947 at Benzinger's Academy in Chicago. Although this was just an exhibition match with no title at stake, I clearly demonstrated my superiority when all the breaks were equal. We were playing a 125-point block. Willie broke the balls, and that ended his part of the, of the entertainment for the evening. Without encountering one tough shot during the entire game, I ran 125 from the break, defeating Moscone by the score of 125-0. to zero. Willie was terribly embarrassed. Instead of rising and congratulating me, which is customary, he sat rooted in his chair. To ease the tension, I turned to him with a smile and said, What are you worried about, Willie? You're still champion of the world. And that concludes uh, chapter 8. We will now move on to chapter 9, which is the final chapter of the book. In New York City, just a step west of Broadway on 47th Street, is the Friars Club, one of the most famous theatrical organizations in America. Stars of stage, screen, radio, and the music world predominate the membership roster. Members come here to pass a pleasant hour and talk shop and let their hair down. Most of my leisure time while I am in New York is spent here among the great and near great of show business. Critics of the drama who write in glowing terms of the comicalities seen in local stage productions would really have something to laugh about if they, if they saw and heard the horseplay, antics, and wisecracks of big-name stars as they rib each other in this fun-filled place. The Friars requested me to produce a three-cushion tournament to be played by members only for the club championship. Can you imagine the comedy situation arising in a match between Milton Berle and Lou Holtz? Both men are great stage and radio comedians. They also talk a very good game of billiards. The music world was represented in the tourney by Pete Wendling, George Myers, and Milton Ager, 
three men who have written some of our nation's most popular song hits for the last quarter of a century. Milton Agers' I Wonder What Became of Sally ranks with Sweet Adeline as a classic for convivial fellows who indulge in something stronger than barbershop harmony. Milton and I have an understanding between us. He plays some of his great song hits for me. In return, I teach him the finer points of billiards. This arrangement works to our mutual satisfaction. Each of us thinks he has the best of the bargain. Many of my friends at the Friars Club have asked me the same question. Have you ever gone into a billiard room incognito and received a challenge to play for a wager by a house player? This has happened many a time. As a rule, I politely decline such invitations. On the other hand, should a player offer an open challenge to meet all comers, regardless of his status as an amateur or professional, then and only then I will pick up the gauntlet. Sometimes a player with an exalted opinion of his own ability will take in too much territory, as the following story will illustrate. While playing in Amarillo, Texas some years ago, the local billiard hall proprietor informed me of a certain Mr. Mack of Boulder, New Mexico, who was open to meet any man in the United States at three cushions. The only condition Mr. Mack imposed was that the game be played in Boulder on Mr. Mack's own equipment. As I had no engagement for that evening, I proposed that my informant and myself drive to Boulder, and I would arrange a match between Mr. Mack and myself for a sizable amount. <coughs> Excuse me. My friend agreed, so off we went on an 80-mile drive. When we reached Boulder, we went directly to Mr. Mack's headquarters, which happened to be the local billiard hall. Without any preliminary skirmishing, we expanded... Excuse me. We explained to the room owner, who greeted us, the purpose of our visit and deposited $500 with him as a side bet on the match game. Mr. Mack is in the movies right now, he said. I'll send someone to get him at once. I'm sure you fellows will be accommodated. I went to the billiard table to examine the cushions and to practice a few shots. After a short interval, Mr. Mack arrived. There was a whispered consultation between him and the local room owner, whereupon he removed his jacket and took his cue from a private cue rack. When Mr. Mack got to the far end of the room where the billiard table was located, he took one look at me and then stood there dumbfounded. Amazement and incredulity. <laughs> incredul Lit, I can't even say that word. Written all over his face. Incredulity. Incredulity? Incredulity? <laughs> I apologize. I can't read today. He had recognized me at once. We had been introduced in Chicago the year previous. Without a word, he threw his cue on the table and literally ran right out of the place. No one but myself understood the reason for this strange action, and I volunteered no explanation. About an hour later, my Amarillo friend and I entered the local restaurant for dinner, and there sat Mr. Mack, 
What made you run away? I asked. I understood you wanted a game. Not with you, he demurred. You see, Ponzi, this people of the people of Boulder think I'm the greatest three cushion player in the world. If they ever saw me play you, they'd begin to think that I was the greatest stumble bum in the world. Mm-mm. I'm keeping my reputation. <laughs> I imagine that by this time my Amarillo friend had spread the story through the entire Texas panhandle that Mr. Mac had ceased challenging the world. The early part of 1948 found me in New York, where I gave many exhibitions at local colleges and boys' clubs. On a recent visit to Fordham University, where I played and gave instructions, many young billiard fans complained that they had played the game for some time, but they did not seem to improve. What should they do about it? In my opinion, the fault lies in the fact that the player started off on the wrong foot without learning the fundamentals of the game. Here are a few simple suggestions, which, if followed, are bound to improve your skill. We shall take it for granted that you know how to hold a firm bridge so that the cue has no chance to wobble. The, the tip of the cue should not be more than four or five inches away from the cue ball. Your position at the table must be easy and relaxed, with weight comfortably placed on both feet. Anytime you find yourself shooting from an awkward position, it is ten to one you are doing the wrong thing. Grip the butt of the cue as near the balance as possible. I wish to stress this point. It is very important. It may sound fantastic, but I honestly believe that 50% of all players hold the cue incorrectly. I grip my cue about 12 inches from the butt end. My contact with the thumb and forefinger is light but firm. This assures a live ball with plenty of action. Don't put too much English on the ball. A trifle to left or right of center will suffice. Hold the cue level and follow through on every stroke. Do not pocket a ball in a haphazard manner. Always figure ahead where your cue ball will stop so that you will be in position to make another ball. These are just a few simple suggestions, but they form the basis of a sound game. If the player will bear these factors in mind, he will be delighted at his own improvement. Some of the boys at Fordham University asked me how the Houstons, Allens, and Taberskis of yesteryear compare with the players of today. I did not venture a personal opinion, since I may be a bit biased, but I did tell them of a conversation that I had had on the same subject with Bob McGeer, veteran Broadway billiard room operator. McGeer was emphatic in declaring that the players of today are far superior to the champions of yesteryear. The old the old time champs, he said, would be lucky to finish a game in 28 or 30 innings, said McGeer. Today, when Ponzi, Moscone, or Crane step to the table, they set their mind on running out in one shot. You don't see all the safety play that they featured years ago. The boys of today shoot at anything, and they come damn near making it, too.
Well, I can recall having a match right here in my own room between Ralph Greenleaf and William Moscone. Ralph ran 90 balls, but still lost the game. The second block, he ran 102 and lost again. He came to me with tears in his eyes. What do I got to do to win this game, he asked. Here I am, playing the best game I ever played in my life, yet I can't seem to win. Yes, sirree, said Bob. These kind, these kids of today just walk up to the table and boom, 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 they're out. The last week of February, 1948, found me back in Chicago with two National Billiard Championship tournaments on my schedule. These were the three cushion and pocket billiard tournaments which were held in conjunction with the International Sports Travel and Boat Show. Although I had played nothing but pocket billiards during my exhibition tour, I felt that my chances were good to annex either phase of the tournament. I'm afraid this feeling was born of overconfidence, though, because as soon as I realized that my three-cushion stroke was not up to par, that it would be best for me to concentrate all my efforts on the... I soon realized that my three-cushion stroke was not up to par, that it would be best for me to concentrate all my efforts on the National Pocket Billiards title. In fact... It was a matter of debate whether I could ever defeat such great players as Ezequiel Navarra, the Argentine champion, who was the eventual winner of this national three-cushion title with a record of 11 wins and no defeats. Playing three and four games a day in order to complete my busy schedule in both titular and both titular events kept me as busy as the proverbial paper hanger with the hat with the hives spending from six to seven hours daily slugging an ivory ball around the table is no play it comes under the heading of strenuous labor when my day was done and i retired for the night all i could see was very colored balls popping <laughs> popping out from my pillow my chances of winning the national pocket tourney were not very bright two days before the finish but I suddenly recovered my stroke and defeated Benny Allen and Jimmy Karras to go in to a tie for first place with Irving Crane, a former champion. Our game to decide the national title was scheduled for the following evening, and I was never more confident in my, in my career that I would emerge the winner. My reason for such optimism was this. I had played Irving in an exhibition match at Julian's New York Academy the November previous, and during our last day of play, I had won two blocks of 125 points each by the, uh, by the unprecedented scores of 125 to zero. While I have no adequate records, I believe this constitutes a world's record for shutouts between two players of championship caliber. <coughs> Excuse me. I do not mean to belittle Crane's ability by crowing over these scores. He was, and still is, a great player. But the psychological effect of such a defeat is bound to make a lasting impression on a player's mind, and to create a mental hazard which is difficult to overcome. This plainly showed in his game when we met to break our deadlock. As he stepped to the table, he was nervous and fidgety. 
All the daring and rapidity of play that had marked his previous games was lost in indecision as he contemplated each shot. Crane had also engaged in both national tournaments, and there is no doubt that he was weary and spent, the same as I, from six hectic days and nights of play in the dual tournaments. Our deciding game was unmarked by any sensational play. Crane could not find his touch. I assumed an early lead, which I increased as the game progressed. The end of the 14th inning found me the winner by a score of 125-53. to 53. With the National Pocket Billiards Championship under my belt, I retired to my hotel to seek a good night's rest. I was utterly worn out from the strain of nine days of competition. With no respite whatsoever, I was slated to meet Willie Moscone for the World's Championship the following afternoon. Our challenge... Our challenge match was a 1,350-point test played in blocks of 150 points each, three games daily. This was necessary because of contractual obligations with the International Sports Show, which had produced the tournament to run simultaneously with their other attractions. Moscone had not participated in a three-cushion national, but had... uh, Moscone had not participated in the three-cushion nationals, but had conserved his energy for the defense of his pocket billiard title. Aside from indulging in light practice sessions, he had not spent his resources in a futile endeavor to win the national three-cushion. As a consequence, he, as fresh as newly churned butter, while I was a little bit frayed about the edges. Our first block was a hotly contested affair, Moscone winning by a score of 150 to 144. Willie, Willie's high run was 68 against a string of 52 for myself. He increased this lead during the day's play, and when we had completed our third blocks, my shoulder tendons were so sore I could hardly raise my arm above my head. Days and nights of continuous play were now taking their toll and I was practically helpless to defend myself. There was no way out of it. I just had to stay and take my beating. And boy, did he dish it out. He was making up for all the humiliation he had suffered when I had defeated him 125-0 to the last time we had met in Chicago. He retained his title by winning by a big margin. Willie and I will probably meet again in the 1948 tournament. Under more propitious circumstances, I hope to give a better account of myself. Whatever the outcome, I will be in there giving the best that I have in me. It was two days after my disastrous encounter with Moscone. I was sitting in my room at the Stevens Hotel in Chicago trying to cure the Charlie Horse which still plagued my right arm and shoulder, when suddenly the phone bell rang and a familiar voice greeted my ear. This is Sam Levy speaking, said the party at the other end of the wire. Well, you old son of a gun, I explained, exclaimed. When did you get in town? Just flew in from New York. 
I read those Moscone scores in the New York Times. I thought maybe you want to weep on my shoulder. I had to laugh. This was just like the old Levy. Who realizes that in this game of give and take, there is always a tomorrow. Come on up, I invited. I'll phone room service for a scotch and soda. This calls for a celebration. When Levy entered the room and grasped my hand, he was all smiles. How's the wife? How's the kids? How do you feel? He rattled, all, he rattled off the questions all in one breath. Fine, fine, and dandy, I answered. I phoned Madeline last night. She'll be here in the morning with the children. The waiter suddenly appeared with a tray on which stood bottles of scotch and soda. He poured us a drink, and Levy raised his glass and a toast. Here's to the new national champion. Long may he reign. We both drank to that, and after... We had settled down. I said, Sam, you didn't make this trip just for the ride. What's on your mind? Andy, I'm moving to Florida with my family where I intend to go into business, he said. Before I settle down and stay in one place, I want to make one more tour with you. I want to go over the same route we made on our first tour 23 years ago. I'd like to meet all the old gang who are still with us and reminisce of old times. What do you say? Is it a go? I did not answer. I just walked over and extended my hand. That was all the contract we needed. It was the only contract that had ever existed between us in the 23 years of our business association. I don't know how long we sat there talking of old times and making new plans for our future. But I do know that it was after our fourth, or maybe it was our fifth, drink of scotch, that we were gaily singing. Happy days are here again. And that concludes chapter nine of the fabulous Mr. Ponzi. Three-time world champion, pocket billiard player, autobiography from 1948 thank you for listening and join us again next week right here on american billiard radio